Hello and welcome to The Kenyanist, a show where we seek a deeper and broader understanding of the social and political issues that Kenyans face. My name is Kamau Wairuri. So the world is just now re-emerging from the COVID-19 pandemic. And there were many things that we saw happening during that period of time, uh, maybe over the last three years or so, that we are now only starting to grapple with and to think about and, and, you know, and trying to make sense of what actually happened in our world um, over that time. So I know that there are several countries around the world where they are now starting to run inquiries into the deaths that occurred to see whether there were people who are negligent and whether we could have done better to prevent death and suffering. In Kenya, we also need to take the moment to think about what happened during that pandemic. Basically, how prepared we were to deal with it, how effective some of the measures we took were, and what some of the consequences of those measures were. Because while we were discussing them in the heat of the pandemic, there was a lot of reaction from people saying either that this is excessive or that we don't know what we need to do in order to protect ourselves. So anything that the government did was taken by some people as being good and appropriate. And I remember writing an article in African Arguments talking about the way that people are policed around the pandemic. And I also previously hosted on this podcast Billian Okoth from Madare, with whom we discussed their efforts to help the community in responding to and dealing with the pandemic and the socioeconomic effects that, that it brought. So we need to talk a lot more about the curfews, the lockdowns and the roadblocks to start to understand the effect that these measures had on our society. But one of the things we haven't really been talking about as much, at least not in intellectual circles, is the question of culture and how it interfaced with the pandemic. We need to think about how did artists see this pandemic and how governments responded to it um, and how they helped other people, uh, members of the community, to, to understand what was going on. And of course, in this sense, one of the most important tools, cultural tools that we can think about and think through is music. So, as is often the case, the government deployed music as an avenue for communicating about public health to the Kenyan society. But we also saw artists come up with songs that were exploring more broadly some of the issues that the pandemic brought. In order to understand this a little bit better, I'm very delighted to be joined by Dr. Felix Mutunga, who's a cultural analyst and who's going to help us explore some of the music that emerged exploring things around the COVID-19 pandemic in Kenya. Felix, welcome to the Kenyanist. Thank you, Kamau. I'm delighted to be here. And you're right. I think culture is, uh, provides an extensive archive through which we can think through important, not, not just important historical moments, but as a country, as, 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 as in a global sense, we go through but through which also we can think of uh, people's engagement with uh, various institutions of power, the, I mean, politics, you know, the economy, and so on and so forth. And, and, and specifically now, my, 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 
my you know focus on popular culture i think um popular culture in the sense that you're talking about culture uh that is um not official not official cultures you know we have these official cultures that are backed by the power and the force of you know uh, the elite the political the social economic elite in, in society so what happens when you look at cultures that are produced by you quote unquote ordinary people one of the first things i noticed about your paper and which is what created a buzz around it on twitter was the fact that the abstract was translated into sheng and i think i've mentioned this this to you that on the one hand i'm very excited about this trend especially in cultural journals where there's there's the effort to translate at least the abstract into some of our own local languages and i was very excited maybe a year or so ago to be invited to help translate an abstract into into my native ikoyo language and i think it's a good thing that we are starting to use our own language languages secondly of course i have to confess that i'm usually quite clueless when it comes to sheng i am a country boy so this always feels very foreign to me nonetheless i enjoy listening to ghetto radio which goes by ribanarieng which i usually just find very very fascinating I have a friend of mine called Naomi Mutua who is kind of my <laughs> my sheng whisperer. So anything that comes up that I don't understand I usually just send it through to her to to translate for me. I'm very interested in hearing you read out the abstract of your paper in sheng just so that I can assess whether you are competent in the language or just as incompetent as i am <laughs> let's go maybe i should offer a disclaimer and say that uh, sheng is a very dynamic language and that uh, it's very hard to get a standardized version of sheng so this is what i came up with when i tried to translate the, the abstract in sheng kwa covid 19 kulifanya gava ikaeridho kuburuga na kukalia wasea mtaani ikitrai kustopisha spread ya covid hii ilikujana riba bwakni za kukua atua na maadui andakava jua hizi riba matam kama shutdown lockdown curfew na isolation zilikuwa zinatumiwa na magava kushow vile wakorada ya pandemic na pia kuadisia zilitumika ka kava ya kuburuga na kukalia raia nikitumia ngoma bwekse pandemic ya kitusiwa featuring roba na pandemic with a k ya akina ochunglo family nadai kuchunguza vile hawa sanii wanachora story za gavaza kutinga na mvurugano wenye ulimok na ngori za pandemic na vile atiao pia ina show venye covid-19 ili change vile tunakembaza shality freedom na resistance ya maodi wa mitaa nikichunguza vile hizi ngoma vile hizi ngoma zinarudia historia ya mastrago za kiukoloni za Kenya na kacha ya Mauru na show vile hawa sanii wanapimia mitaa za maodi Kanairo kama mitaa za Ngori na wa ambapo pandemic mob zinagongana kwa disia nikorada ya vile hawa sanii wanadai tupimie dunia inayo collapse juu ya pandemic mob kama njia moja uh, ya kuleta change for those guys who understand sharing of course now that sets the landscape of the conversation that we are going to have and then labda at the end of it 
they come back in the in the feedback and tell us whether they think we have captured and and, and covered everything well and maybe we might get another translation of the of the abstract those two songs that you're talking about there are quite significant and and they form a good part of the paper i like that you begin your paper by talking about um a song that was produced and, and sung by the state house choir called to to Malize corona kenya which translates to let's end corona in in kenya and because we've grown up in a culture where the state has often used music not just as a way of passing public information but also as a way of extracting loyalty and subservience and and sort of disciplining the the masses in a way because you know with all these patriotic songs that many of us were even compelled to learn as we were growing up i think that music plays a very important role in how we imagine ourselves as a society not just at the at the popular level as you are saying but also in terms of how power is radiated by the state to the population and so i want us to start our conversation there you tell us a little bit more about this song and how you read it the purpose that it was meant to serve and the extent to which it was effective in in doing that i do not want to take away the fact that uh this song by Status Squire was part of a repertoire of songs that were important in disseminating information on public health if you listen to the song you have these messages about you know uh, sanitization social distancing avoiding uh, social gatherings and so on and so forth there was a whole lot of songs that were produced around that major theme disseminating public health information we should not forget who who is singing the song right it's it's by state house choir right uh, state house choir is is is, is it was a choir that was performed uh, when i was doing my research was formed during kibaki's uh, regime right uh, it's made up of officials drawn from who work in the state house state house is is the seat the, 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 the highest seat of power presidential and state power in the land this opens up a whole lot of questions and a very interesting uh, questions about the relationship between art uh the complex relationship for that matter between art and power right if if you watch the song itself it's you know there are subtle ways in which it's uh, subtle or not <laughs> which in which it is interspersed by you know the minister the cabinet secretary for for health the president comes at the end of it all there's this show of the state's capability the state's preparedness in dealing with covid-19 shown a uh, clips of hospital beds those isolation beds which it was a whole other conversation in the thick of the moment of covid-19 so you get this picture of a government that was ready a government that was prepared to deal with covid-19 on top of that you 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 feel that the experience of covid-19 is collapsed into these blankets i mean part of it there's there's a point where even you you we are provided in a song we are provided with a hotline where individuals are asked to call if you have any symptoms of covid-19 then you are asked to 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 make that call watching the song you realize that there are certain gaps and silences and 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 erasures in the way kenyans experienced covid-19 
right? Their experiences of police brutality, police violence, their experiences of lack of uh, infrastructure, social amenities, social protection programs that would shield marginalized communities from the brand that was COVID-19. I think it's a very good starting point because, as you say, there's there's a function that it serves in terms of public education, but then there's also the the propaganda element of it as well, how effective the Kenyan state has been over the years to use music as a way of pushing propaganda. In your paper, and you were alluding to this, you then turned to Kenyan hip-hop, to hip-hop, which you describe as an alternative archive. I could not help but recall Unbogable and how a song came to capture so aptly the spirit of a nation as we headed into the 2002 election. And now always conjures up a sense of of betrayal, the betrayal that followed after that that hype and expectation. In terms of for our non-technical audience, and and I include myself in this this category because I'm not a cultural analyst in the same way that that you are, could you explain what you mean by hip-hop as an alternative archive? In scholarship, in the academia. There are topics, there are practices, there are processes that are deemed to be, to use this word uh, loosely, to be serious or worthy of, of, of academic or scholarly attention. My proposal to look at hip-hop, these two particular artists, as an alternative archive stems partly from that. It also stems partly from the way that they offer counter-narrative into the official narratives of what we know about COVID-19, what happened during COVID-19, of the historical moment of COVID-19, right? Uh, Leave alone the government policy approaches, leave alone the uh, uh, art that was sanctioned by the force and the power of the state. So what happens when we look at ordinary people. And and, and as I mentioned, in this sense, I refer to those individuals who are not attached to any political, economic, and and, and social power. Tell us a little bit about the songs that you end up discussing. There's a way that songs interface with the ongoing current affairs discussions. And these two songs that you're discussing, of course, are very related to the issue of the pandemic. So tell us a bit about these songs so that we get a frame of how they come into play before we then delve into the details. There's an extent unto which not just songs not just offer social commentary, on particular social historical moments, but they also, in addition to that, they also influence processes of change. There are various artists in this in this in this in this country who have produced songs that you know not only capture these moments but also encapsulate a certain spirit that you know uh, permeates to the larger social political arena. You know, the likes of Giuliani, for example. Uh, I remember this song. Was it Nikonja? That one, um, uh, I forgot. I'm, I'm not sorry. <laughs> Am I supposed to be singing? <laughs> <laughs> no, you can sing. Yeah? He says, Sita Simama Maovu Yakitawala. You've also reminded me of Eric Wainaina's Nchi Yakitu Kidogo as well, and Jaguar before he became a politician as well. So the two songs 
that I chose to analyze here. Both of them are, are, are called pandemic. The, the first one is pandemic with a, with a C. It's by um, Kitusiwa and Roba. Kitusiwa and Roba, I think people who are aware of the Kenyan hip-hop uh, scene, they know that these are quite talented, you know, artists who, from the Uko, the, the so-called Ukoflani Maumau. Ukoflani Maumau was the first group, hip-hop group, to come up in Kenya in the 1990s. And then there is a um, pandemic that ends with a K, not a C this time round, by the Ochunglo family. Ochunglo family is part of what we have nowadays come to refer to as the Gengeton. These songs, to me, were interesting because they sort of rejected, it's as if they challenge certain ideas about COVID-19. They not only challenge the idea of COVID-19 as this unprecedented uh, sort of crisis, for example, to see and Roba song eloquently does that. And in addition to experienced are questions that are raised about how people within Kenya's urban margin COVID-19 experienced government policies towards, you know, the control of the spread of it and, and so on and so forth. So that's, that's the reason why I stayed with these songs and the way that also they portray people within Kenya's urban margins. There's a sentence you have in your, in your paper, which I love that the setting of pandemic in Dandora indicates that Kenyan urban margins always been plagued by different sorts of pandemic. The idea that the crisis that emerged from COVID-19 is unprecedented is quite ahistorical. In, in a lot of ways, just glosses over the reality that the majority of people in Kenyan cities, especially in the city of Nairobi, have to experience as their daily existence. One of the interesting things you, you are highlighting here about the way music is used to, to represent the reality and how these artists, the Kenyan hip-hop artists, used their, their songs to show that the pandemic was just one of many other kind of crises that are existing at the urban margins, by, by which we mean often the poorer and most neglected parts of the, of the city. But as I was reading your, your paper, I was thinking about how the question of voice often comes up in sociopolitical and cultural analysis. We often really hear these conversations about people saying that we are giving voice to the voiceless, which is a sentiment that always makes me cringe. And I think the best engagement with this question, and I have got to issue a, a, a geek alert to, to the audience here, is, is the work of, um, of Gayatri Spivak, who I am sure you are familiar with, with, with that, that essay, Can the Subaltern Speak? It's a very complex piece of writing, which I love very much, because she shows how even the most marginalized people have a voice. They do find ways of expressing themselves, but you know, often notes notes also how you know they are often spoken for or represented by by others, and often how this ends up with disastrous outcomes. And in a previous episode here, I, as I mentioned, I hosted Billion Okoth, who's a community organizer from Madare, 
And he, by the way, himself, he's a, he's a former hip-hop artist. He started his career as, as an artist. And we talked about representation of the communities in, in the Kenyan ghettos, or what we describe as, as the urban margins. And one of the questions that was in my mind at the time, juxtaposing both the paper I was reading, you've written, and also my conversation with Billion, is that question we often ask ourselves of whether the people we elect, the politicians we elect, actually do the work of representing us. And then I have to think about that in the context of what the artists are doing, right? In this in this case, the the, the, the Ochunglo family and Kitusua and Roba that you're talking you're talking with and talking to and engaging with in your in your work on the cultural sphere. I want you to give me a sense of the extent to which you think these artists are doing a fair job of representing their community and if so to whom? And how you compare that with the reality of elected officials and government officials, how this politics emerges and how they they interplay with, with each other. I think that the two artists, oh, before, I, before I go there, let me just mention and say that there is, there is a particular assumption that um, scholars have when you go out to the field to study, you collect raw data, right? That you come and sit and interpret. And so you are the overall authority, right? Sort of now that you, uh, to assume that you are giving them, loosely to say this, that you're giving them a voice. In my opinion, that the songs, the, for example, but the, the songs, uh, Kitusiwa Kitu, and Roba song and Ochunglo family song, they actually theorize, they actually create an archive, they actually create knowledges about their experiences of living within Nairobi's urban margins. Not just Nairobi's urban margins, but about also their engagement with you know, global capitalism, their engagement with high, the hyper-policing that happens within these urban margins and the overall social political and economic scenario that is happening in the country. What I think then that they do a just representation, so to speak, of the experiences of the people within these urban margins, when you listen to hip hop artists, they often talk about, you know, rapping, um, I rap, you know, Kibera, I rap uh, Dandora, I rap Madare, and so on and so forth. You know, it's, 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 it's part of a repertoire, it's part of a grammar of them saying, look, we come from certain uh, spaces that have certain memories, that have specific histories, and this inform the music. If you listen to the entire, of, uh, I mean, repertoire of songs produced by the different artists from Ukoflani Maumau, you realize that there are certain themes, there are certain strands that you can pick from each and every artist, from each and every song that, you know, speak to specific concerns within these urban margins, and especially um, uh, Dandora, uh, because that's where Ukoflani uh, Mau began. So this idea of rapping is very important. For me, I think there, there, there is a correlation between the growth of hip-hop and the particular themes that it addresses and the lack of political representation uh, of this uh, space. So you have this 
politicians who have wholly absconded their duty of representation, right? For those of us who are familiar with uh, Dandora, I've stayed in Dandora for, for quite some time, social amenities are non-existence. Issues like drainage, the water, the provision of water, right? Um, these these are things things that are hard to come by. One scholar uh, by the name of Mickey Costa says that argues that because of this sort of you know marginalization, because of this sort of historical deprivation 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 of, of, of these spaces, then the people in these spaces live in what she refers to as a state of emergency. I think that is very profound, right? So th there is a correlation between uh, the the sort of lack of political representation and the decision by artists to stay with themes and issues that speak directly to their social economic and political lives that's that's interesting and and sorry i know i asked you a very long complex and convoluted question there but but i think you've tackled it very well and i'm i'm drawn back to the conversation about the archive and i'm just thinking to myself how in the way you discuss this music, it says so much about what knowledge we have at the local level, indigenous knowledge at the local level, that is not necessarily legible to different kinds of audiences. Because I would imagine not many of our politicians, the socio-political and cultural and economic elite in Kenya are listening to Ukoflani, Mau Mau, and many of these artists, especially the ones that have not have not really taken the commercial route. And tying it back to the to the Spivakian ideas about legibility, right? And my question here is, how do we bring this knowledge? How do we bring these conversations and, and discourses to wider audiences to be more, especially, perhaps not wider, because I think there's an audience that is already consuming this, but how do we translate this knowledge into a way that it can impact politics and, and, and policy? To begin with, I think that this kind of conversation we're having here is 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 it's one it's one point where to begin, but then um, how to relay it then to uh, policy analysts, uh, guys who make policies is 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 also another matter. Kamau, I, I need to admit that I'm not particularly an expert in this in this kind of thing. I think having conversations like this to begin with. And also, if if we could come up, if scholarship and academic academics could come up with ways in which um, they could liars, not just academics themselves, uh, but also the uh, policy experts could come up with ways in which they could they could liars with, you know. Uh, knowledges and experiences from certain locations. Then, but then again, that now also calls for you know the will uh, to 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 do that, right? Because uh, more often than not, uh, and I think we have been I've been having this conversation with various colleagues of late that there's there's a certain sort of detachment that you observe with uh, government policy analysts and uh, you know. There is a removal from the reality that is happening on, on the ground 
from what you know the kind of policies uh, that, that 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 they make, and I think this part the, the, at this particular moment, I think every Kenyan is concerned about. I feel that this is beyond my, I or should I say, this is a rather complex issue, right? That um, requires you know the will to do that. Of course, um, you might you might you might get individuals who are willing to do that, but then again, would the the other question would be then. Um, would the decision makers themselves be interested in, in making this kind of decision? Because we know then, like for example, if I can return to the songs that, that, that I'm making here, there's, there's a certain way in which economies are, are structured, right? That, um, the, the, I mean, the, the, the marginalization of certain spaces is historical, and there are certain benefits that you know are made uh, out of out uh, politicians and the economic elite draw certain benefits from this historical marginalization of certain spaces and certain areas. So is it in their best interest then, sort of, to to make decisions that you know would uh, meaningfully impact the lives of these individuals? I see that there's an overlap between my work and yours. And, and this excited me as I was reading your paper. In looking at and how the residents of the urban margins engage with the Kenyan state. We have seen this in the work of many scholars who have done research in the in the urban margins, including people like Wangui Kemari, whose work you have cited in, in your paper. But we're also seeing that emerging from, from the two songs that you're examining in your paper. Could you give us a sense of how these artists characterizing the relationship between their communities and the Kenyan state? I want to begin with... Uh... Uh, one song at a time. So I'll begin, uh, if, if I may begin with uh, Kitusiwa and Roba's uh, pandemic, I would say this, that uh, if when you watch the song itself, it begins with uh, a, a shot, a screenshot of the Dandora dam site. And this Dandora dam site becomes a recurring feature as the song unfolds, as the song plays. Right. So, so, so to me, then, uh, this image of Dandora, which is often just opposed alongside clips of other spaces, sort of creates a contrast, a, a contrast of sorts about the experiences and the lives of these people within these locations. A noteworthy thing for me, then, is how this song then references the sort of environmental injustice that happens in Dandora because of the dam site. And then sort of this also now references again to the kind of conversations that have been having about garbage collection and, and recycling. This highlights the kind of marginalization that these spaces have had, the kind of relationship with power, the kind of relationship with the state that these spaces have had and the people have had with uh, over time. When you listen to Roba's part, who sing, who, I mean, who raps after Kitusiwa raps, he, he mentions about the, or he alludes to, no, he doesn't allude, he mentions the hyper-policing. So he sings about how Mabutbutu wamekuja nagan, zirungu nagan. This takes us back to the long histories and the relationship of these uh, uh, spaces with government. And as I've analyzed, right, that um, it also speaks to the, the kind of relationship or the kind of uh, approach that the government has always had towards marginalized uh, spaces 
and young masculinities that occupy these spaces. Uh, when you move to the other song by Ochunglo Family, and as, as I mentioned, that this song for me is, is quite interesting because one, it, 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 it refuses a certain kind of cultural gerontocracy, artistic expression, the genealogies of uh, you know, Kenyan hip-hop and so on and so forth. And then it showcases masculinities that occupy public spaces in ways that are defiant, in ways that sort of run counter to the prevailing policies and government regulations about COVID-19, about social distancing, about digestion, about so on and so forth. For me, then, the way in which they present their bodies within public spaces in ways that refuse a certain kind of respectability politics that is exercised within uh, Kenyan public speaks to the larger conversation about uh, their refusal or, or their refusal of the haphazard manner with which the state lifted regulations about COVID-19 and imposed them on certain areas, disadvantaged spaces, individuals whose uh, spaces lack the infrastructure, the health amenities, and so on and so forth, that would safeguard the livelihoods over, over time. So they speak to that, as any Kenyan would know, that there is an obsession within Kenyan politics. We keep, we keep on telling the young people that they are the leaders of tomorrow, right? So you, a large population of the youth have been marginalized within certain political and economic spaces and social spaces that make decisions about the lives of, of, of people. So there's that rejection, there's that defiance of this sort of gerontocratic politics that pervades the larger Kenyan social, political and economic scene that the song expresses and speaks to. I want us to expand the purview a little bit and, and think a bit more about going beyond the two songs and thinking a bit more broadly about cultural production that is relating to to the COVID-19 pandemic. And, and one of the, the songs that I know I, I shared with you and we had a brief chat about it, I'm a country boy and I'm a fan of Mugivi. There's a song by a guy called Kurogawa Wajiko which is called Tomahede, which I think alludes to the idea that Tomahede is, well, is, is, is small bones or perhaps emaciated uh, bones, if bones can get emaciated, or maybe brittle, I don't know. This song takes a different tune to the discussion about corona. It looks at corona as a disjuncture, as a, as, as a period in time that disrupted what was otherwise a good life and then made it worse, right? One of the key themes that, or one of the key points that is the anchor points in the song is that before corona, we had hips, but after corona, they got deflated. And I, I read this as a play between, on the one hand, the idea that we were better fed and we had money before COVID, and then COVID came, and 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 we were impoverished by 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 it, and therefore malnourished. But there's also the a play on the on the cultural discourse around, um, especially women wearing certain things. I don't know how to describe them or modes of dressing that have to accentuate. Their, their bodily features, especially especially the hips and, 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 and so on. I'm just thinking about how you would juxtapose this this song vis-a-vis -vis the two that you have selected to analyze in your in your paper. 
I think one of the things that comes out clearly when you listen to a pandemic by Kichisiwa and Roba is, 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 is uh, seriousness, the soberness and sobriety and seriousness of themes and uh, that the song or the artists take, which, which then when you go to a pandemic by um, the Ochunglo family, it's, it's sort of they, they, they sort of turn that upside down. Right. So, you would expect that um, art that is created in times of uh, adversity or pandemics would, uh, you know, sort of uh, capture a certain pre-existing mood uh, across the country. But then, I think uh, pandemic by Chungo family and Tumahende sort of... Uh, are produced against uh, this this kind of uh, uh, melancholy and, and 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 tone and mood that that was prevailing at that at that time, right? And and what I find interesting in Tumahinde is the comical and humorous turn which it takes. This comical turn is sort of a commentary on the prevailing apocalyptic messaging that came with the uh, with the pandemic. So to me, then, um, I would say that uh, the artist appears to be laughing in the face of adversity. He, he, he exhibits an aesthetic of defiance in the midst of, uh, just like, uh, you know, uh, pandemic by Ochunglo family, in the midst of intensified policing uh, and restrictions about leisure, about recreation, uh, and in so doing, he refuses the fear and the anxiety, the loss and the pain that came with the pandemic. This sort of captures the resilience of the human spirit in the face of adversity. But we shouldn't look at this defiance, the kind of defiance that is exhibited in Tumahinde or in Ochunglo family's pandemic as throwing caution to the wind. I think... For these artists, it's a deliberate decision to not be overwhelmed by the moment, the historical moment. So to focus, rather to focus uh, or, or, or to shift their focus to uh, to these life-giving aspects of, 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 of the pandemic that show uh, or capture the resilience of the human spirit uh, and, and, and also express hope about the future. If I'm reading your work and, and the work of other cultural analysts correctly, it seems that this genre is kind of a double-edged sword, which on the one hand, it is challenging the ways in which people at the urban margins are relegated and violated by the state and, and therefore is seen as acting as an avenue for, for the pursuit of freedom. But then... These songs tend to go beyond challenging state authority to including ideas about about morality. It seems that they also reproduce structural violence and oppression, especially in the forms of sexism and, and misogyny, including in some cases promoting femicide, which is something that, that you discuss in your in your paper. I want us to conclude the conversation by thinking about hearing you talk about what you think about this. Basically, the question of if they are pursuing freedom, is it freedom if it's not freedom for all? Or can we reduce it to, as you say, ratchetness? I like the work of Ivan Mwangi. Ivan Mwangi 
has written a lot on um, a very incisive article, let me say that, on Ukoflani Maumang. And one of the things that Ivan Mwangi observes is that um, um, hip-hop is highly masculinist, even misogynistic. Uh, and, 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 and this is true, not just in Kenyan hip-hop, but if you look at uh, hip-hop across the, the globe, there is a certain way in which they represent or they feature women in their films in, in very limiting and, and sometimes very objectifying ways. Hip-hop and popular culture has the capacity to challenge certain regimes of uh, power, but it also has the capacity, it's, like you're saying, it's, an, it's a double-edged song, but also has the capacity to perpetuate conservative discourses. And, and, and while, while, while at the same time, it, it, it is an avenue uh, or it, 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 it champions for a progressive sort of politics, it also negates that, 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 that space that it offers. It's also negated in the ways that it appears to, you know, be complicit, not just in the way it portrays women, but also in the ways in which uh, the conviviality that exists between, you know, art and, and power. And, and, and you and I know that uh, uh, for every uh, unborgable song, <laughs> you can also cite a song that, you know, ran counter to... Um, uh, the political will to create change and meaningful change for that matter within society and and and, and you can cite and you can refer to particular artists who, who, who did that in Ochunglo family's uh, pandemic they they are very sexist com- comments that are made about women's bodies they uh, and, and, and and that objectify sexually objectify women I, I would i would i, I urge uh, that while 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 we study them while we pay attention to the fact that they prefer these very progressive politics they they also negate that space that they 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 they, they, they prefer by perpetuating this kind this particular kind of discourses they then uh, the, what what happens is that the scholar then, or the analyst, uh, then has to be attentive to the ways in which cultural spaces speak to particular regimes of power and against those particular regimes of power. Wonderful. And I mean, even in Kurugao and Jiko's song, we can talk about how misogyny also manifests Felix, it's been a pleasure listening to you talk about your work and to engage with your work and think about the popular culture space in in Kenya and to talk about the COVID-19 pandemic in a way that allows us to look at our society and, and what really changed, if at all, and what has largely remained the same. Thank you so much for joining me on The Kenyanist and for sharing your work. Thank you so much. Uh, It's a pleasure, Kamal. That marks the end of our show today. Thank you for listening. In case you have any questions, comments, please contact us at www.thekenyanist.com. Reach us via social media using the handle at The Kenyanist. You can also contact us on the same platforms for guest and topic recommendations. 
We are grateful for your continued support. You can help the podcast grow by rating us wherever you get your podcast and sharing it with others who may find the topics in our discussions interesting. Until next time, goodbye.